everyone, I hope you're all doing so well and welcome back to the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode, we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history. And today we're heading to Canada and we're talking about the case of Delon Millard. So Delon Millard was a privileged rich kid who thought that he could do whatever he wanted. He dropped out of school, got funded by his dad, threw wild parties, got into drugs. And he also used to kind of by his friends as well. He bought his little group of friends jet skis, fast cars, and luxury holidays. And when I say that Dylan was a privileged rich kid, I mean rich. I mean rich, rich. He was basically the type of person who paid to have this little posse around him. He wanted to feel cool. He wanted to feel liked. But unfortunately, Dylan was not a nice person. So he basically had to pay to have friends. And one of these so-called friends was a a man called Mark Smitch. And just like Dylan, he was also a pretty terrible person. Now, Mark was arrogant. He was cocky. He was also a wannabe rapper and <laughs> he's not very talented at all. So that was not going to work. And Mark also lived a life of crime, just like Dylan, which is why they bonded. And when Dylan and Mark came together, things became pretty toxic very quickly. They were both thrill seekers. They both became partners in crime. And following this, a series of both crazy and terrible events soon unfolded. And that is what we're going to be getting into today, the case of Della Millard, but also his so-called friend Mark Smitch. So it's kind of like a killer couple, really. Killer friends. Wow. And he's also privileged and very rich. Yes. Yeah, so we're going to get into all of that today. So let's dive in. So Della Millard was born on the 30th of August, 1985, making him a Virgo. He grew up in Toronto, Ontario. Yes, like I said, we're in Canada again today. He was an only child and he was born to parents Wayne Millard and Madeline Millard. And Dylan, like I said in the intro, was born into money. His parents were very, very wealthy. I'm talking multi-millionaire kind of wealthy. So the way they had made their money was Dylan's grandfather set up an aviation business. This was back in the 60s and the business was called Millard Air and it was just a transportation for cargo airline. As far as I'm aware, it wasn't like a passenger airline. And this was in the 60s where air travel was becoming a little bit more popular, like the transportation of goods by air as well was becoming a little bit more popular. So the business really took off. And then Dylan's dad, Wayne, inherited the company. And I don't actually know how successful the business was when Wayne, who is Dylan's dad, took over. But the business had made so much money that they were just living off the wealth that the grandfather had made. Now, the Millard family were very, very wealthy. They owned multiple properties. They would take luxury holidays. And from a very, very, very young age, Dylan got whatever he wanted, like whatever he asked for, he got. He even asked for a pony one time. Well, technically he asked for a horse. It's like, daddy, can I get a pony? <laughs> it's like, it's crazy that that actually happens. And Dylan wasn't just bought anything that he wanted. He was allowed to do anything that he wanted as well. He was allowed to drive cars around the family airport from a very young age. And I'm talking like 10, 12, he was driving cars. And by the time he was a teenager, 
He was even flying private planes. So Dylan had the childhood of something from like a TV show or film. Very, very privileged. However, for Dylan, things were not great in his school life. Dylan struggled to fit in. And Dylan was often seen a little bit as the weird kid. And Dylan became known as the dog biscuit kid. I don't know if that was exactly his nickname, but he became known for eating dog biscuits because he would just walk the hallways of his school with dog biscuits in his pocket and he would just eat them because he said that they tasted good. Also in school, Dylan was pretty insecure about the way he looked, about his weight, and kids also gave him the nickname Dylan the Melon, which is just horrible. Like kids really are the worst. Now there was one thing that Dylan did to try and impress the other kids at school and that was to flaunt his wealth. He was hoping that that would gain respect from the other kids in school, but that never seemed to work, which it never does. However, there was one thing that did seem to impress the other kids in school, and that is when Dylan was 14. He became a little bit of a media sensation because he set a world record. Dylan set the world record for being the youngest person ever to fly both a helicopter and a fixed plane wing so on the same day. Now I did see some reports that were a little bit skeptical that this was even a world record. I mean it doesn't really seem like it does it because he wasn't the youngest person to fly a helicopter solo and he wasn't the youngest person ever to fly a fixed wing plane solo. He was just the youngest person ever to do both on the same day. Day. And people have just said that it was kind of one of those world records that was just made up to kind of make him feel better. Basically, his daddy paid someone to get him a world record. But Dylan having a world record did seem to impress the other kids at school, but just for a little bit because it wasn't long until all of the kids in his school soon forgot about all of it. And Dylan went back to having no friends and feeling incredibly isolated again. Dylan's parents also got divorced when he was pretty young. And by the time Dylan entered his teenage years, he has started to rebel. Dylan ended up living with his dad and he grew up to really resent his dad. He even blamed his dad for his weight, saying that his dad would always feed him pasta. But it just seems like Dylan liked to blame other people for everything because this continued on into his adult life. And I tried to find like were his parents like not good parents or anything like that because let's be honest in these stories a lot of the time the parents are not the best. Couldn't find anything in my research that would suggest that Wayne was a bad parent in any way. Would he have been perfect? No, he probably made mistakes. So after school, Dylan did attend college, but he dropped out pretty much straight away. Given Dylan's background, his wealth, he didn't really have the motivation to succeed in life. He was just used to everything being handed to him. Well, college and the real world doesn't work like that. And Dylan didn't like it, so Dylan dropped out. So instead of going to college, Dylan started working with his dad at the family business. And I say working like this because he wasn't really working. He was just being paid to do nothing. He spent most of his time 
partying and he would throw the wildest parties. He would also take a lot of drugs and it just reminded me of Chuck Bass. Apart from the fact that Chuck Bass had some redeeming qualities and obviously he turned out really good, but Dylan is no Chuck Bass. And Dylan used to throw these parties in his dad's luxury, lavish house. He would throw the wildest parties. As time went on, the parties were getting crazier and crazier. And Dylan's dad just didn't seem to really care. Apparently, after the divorce, Dylan's dad, Wayne, became a little bit of a recluse. He also struggled a little bit with an alcohol addiction. So whenever Dylan would throw these parties, Wayne would literally just go up into his room and shut the door and ignore the whole situation. And I think it's safe to say that Dylan did not live up to the expectations that his dad had of him. Dylan's dad wanted Dylan to inherit the family business, take over where he had taken over from his dad. But Dylan showed zero interest in the family business. And I don't think he had anything to do with the family business or anything like that. Dylan just showed zero interest in work, full stop. And the tensions between Dylan and his dad about the family business were definitely a source of tension that do crop up later on in the story. And in this moment, you kind of have got to feel sorry for Dylan because I can't even imagine the pressure or the expectations to inherit the family business. Like I can't even imagine your path already being chosen for you the moment you are born. If that is what you want to do, then that's great. But if it's not what you want to do, like I can't even imagine how trapped you would feel and even though Dylan is a bad person, okay, he is. But I do think that him being in this situation does explain the rebellious behavior. It definitely does not explain or excuse what he's going to do later. So back to all of these crazy parties that Dylan is having. Remember he has graduated from high school right now and he's in his early 20s. And the strange thing about the parties that Dylan was having is that all the people that were at the parties apart from Dylan were high school kids. Dylan as an adult still struggled to make friends so he was that really really strange person that would hang around with people younger than him because the younger people would think that he's cool. And Dylan would invite all of these high school students around, which first of all, creepy as hell. He would invite all of these high school kids around to try and impress them with his wealth. And it worked. He would throw these crazy parties. His house had a pool. He had multiple Xboxes, flat screen TVs, pool tables. So of course, all of these high school kids absolutely loved being at Dylan's house because of these amazing parties. Dylan would even let some of these high school kids just live with him. He would let them sleep in his basement. And eventually Dylan did move out of the family home and he did rent a place for himself. And his little gang of high school kids followed him and Dylan would spend so much money on this little group of followers. He would buy really expensive dinners from fancy restaurants. He would take them on holiday. They would go skydiving. He would take them in a helicopter. He would buy them really lavish luxury gifts. He even bought some of his followers jet skis. Why would you buy someone a jet ski? And I think Dylan having this little group of followers definitely put him on the path because Dylan felt invincible. He felt like he was this leader of 
kind of his own little cult. It's not a cult, but you know what I mean. So as Dylan went through his early 20s, he had formed this little posse around him. And one of the members of this little group around Dylan was Mark Smitch. Now, Mark was born on the 13th of August, 1987, making him a Leo. He grew up in a middle-class family and pretty much his whole childhood, teenage years, he rebelled. And Mark was getting into trouble left, right, and center. He was getting in trouble at home, at school, and with the law. Mark had a pretty detailed criminal record. Most of it was just like really petty crime, like graffiti, there was drug offenses. There was a couple of driving offenses, offenses of failing to attend court, etc. Now, after graduating high school, Mark had aspirations of becoming a world famous rapper. However, there was one problem with this. He didn't have any talent. However, Mark didn't really seem to have people around him that would tell him that, so he was very delusional. Dangle you from the roof, true motherfuckers know I leave you blacked up and blue bruised. Who's who? Blues clues. Tell the cops anything and then you die on the news. Peace, bitch. You're deceased, kid. Fuck with me, say 10, the genius. And Mark spent his early 20s getting drunk all the time, getting high and selling drugs to make money. And Mark met Dylan for the first time in 2006. Mark was actually one of the people that Dylan invited to his parties. Now, at first it's said that Dylan didn't really like Mark at all. He actually found him quite annoying, which to be honest, I feel like I am in agreement with Dylan here. And no matter how hard Dylan tried, Mark would just always pop up. He would always be everywhere. And over the years, because Mark just seemed to be everywhere, he did seem to work his way into Dellen's inner circle. Now, I suspect that he only worked his way into Dellen's inner circle because no one else liked Dellen. Mark was pretty much the only person in the world that liked Dylan. And Dylan actually realized that no one else had stuck around and it was only Mark left. So yeah, now these two, it's 2012 and they are best friends. Now, pretty much the basis of their friendship is that they could both benefit from each other. Mark was this aspiring rapper and he believed that with Dylan's money, maybe some of his connections, he would become successful. And Dylan, on the other hand, wanted to be like this rebellious bad boy, like that kind of vibe, which Mark was. And Mark had all the contacts of the drug dealers and the gun dealers. And Dylan wanted Mark to introduce him into that world. So they both benefited from each other. So they were living this party lifestyle together. Like I said, it's 2012. Dylan is 26 at this point, And he is burning through his inheritance money pretty quickly. But Dylan Dylan was also spending a lot of money on weapons and heavy machinery. And Dylan got this new obsession with blowing things up just for the fun of it. It's even reported that Dylan bought himself a rocket launcher. It's pretty obvious that both Dylan and Mark are thrill seekers, but along with all of this blowing stuff up and everything and partying, it started to get a little bit redundant and they were getting a little bit bored and they turned to something else to get their kicks which was petty crime. Dylan and Mark would go on these criminal missions 
that's what they called it, where they would go out driving around the neighborhood and basically steal whatever they wanted. They would steal um, like machinery, like from farms and stuff, construction equipment. They would steal cars, motorcycles, jet skis. I don't know why they have a fascination with jet skis. And they obviously were not doing this for money because Dellen could pretty much buy everything that he ever wanted in life. They were doing this for the thrill, for the adrenaline. So up until this point, we haven't really spoken about Dedan's dating life. Wow, we're about to. So over the years, he did date a few people on and off, like nothing serious. However, he did date one person for a little bit longer and he actually did get engaged to them, but then he called it off. So yeah, nothing that was too serious because I feel like an engagement in Dedan's eyes is still not serious. Like I just feel like he would have just like proposed to someone just for the thrill of it, just to get attention, you know what I mean? And currently in 2012, he is in a relationship with a woman named Christina Nuga. And they had been dating for a few months now. I'm pretty sure that they met at one of Dylan's parties and they would party a lot together. However, there was something that Christina did not like in the relationship. And that is how close Dylan was to one of his ex-girlfriends, who was a woman named Laura Babcock. Laura grew up in a middle-class family in Toronto and she was full of life. Like she was just one of those people that lived every day to the fullest. Everyone loved her. She had so much to give and she had dreams of becoming an actress. And Dylan and Laura had first met back in 2008 when Laura was studying for her arts and drama degree. And it's said that Laura kind of became infatuated with Dylan and his lifestyle and she kind of got caught up in Dylan's lifestyle of partying, drinking, taking drugs. Their relationship didn't last for too long. And after their relationship ended, they did remain friends that would hook up sometimes, you know. And Dylan and Laura would sleep together even if Dylan had another girlfriend. And this is exactly what happened when Dylan was seeing Christina. Dylan claimed that himself and Christina had an open relationship, but that is what Dylan claimed. That is not what Christina claimed. So in February 2012, it was Laura's birthday and Christina texts Laura to taunt her. And she said, happy birthday. It was a year ago today that me and Dylan first had sex. And in response to this, Laura just texts back and said, that's fine. I slept with him a couple of weeks ago. And I've got to say good for Laura for texting that because it's on Dylan. Don't take it out on Laura, take it out on Dylan. And as you can imagine, Christina was absolutely furious at this. She was like, oh my God, how dare she? It's like, come on, Christina, you text her first. It's like, what were you expecting? And Christina made it very, very clear to Dylan that she was not okay with Dylan and Laura still being friends. So then Dylan sent a text to Laura that said, quote, you are harmful to me. Please don't try to contact me until you've made some huge leaps of self-discovery. As I said before, good luck with life. I'm sorry, he's telling Laura to make huge leaps of self-discovery. <laughs> oh my God, the hypocrisy. So then after Dylan sent that message to Laura, he then sends a message to Christina where he's talking about Laura and he says, first I'm going to hurt her, then I will make her leave. I am going to remove her from our lives. And then unfortunately on July 3rd, 2012, Laura Babcock 
disappeared. Laura was first reported missing by an ex of hers who was a man called Sean and she had dated Sean just after she had finished her relationship with Dylan. Now again their relationship only lasted 18 months but they still remained very close friends after the relationship and Laura had recently fallen onto hard times. She struggled a lot with anxiety and depression. Laura had also started to harm herself and she was also self-medicating to cope and there was a couple of times as well where Laura found herself homeless and she was working as an escort to just try and get some money but throughout all of this Sean tried his best to support Laura. He was always there for Laura even though they weren't in a relationship anymore. He was always trying to help her out with money. He was always trying to find her a place to stay. He also gave her an iPad as well so it would be easy for her to find accommodation, find work and stuff like that. He was just always there to keep an eye on her. He was always there to look out for her. And whenever Laura needed him, Sean would be there. And when Sean didn't hear from Laura for a few days, this was weird because they were in contact most days. So when Sean went to the police and was like, listen, Laura, she's missing. I haven't heard from her in a few days. Like, I need you to find her. The police, after finding out that Laura had struggled with her mental health, that she was suffering with anxiety and depression, but also the fact that Laura was working as an escort, the police didn't care. They were just like, oh, she's high risk. Like she'll turn up. Like she's not really missing. Like, don't worry. And the police dropped the case. They didn't look for Laura because they thought that she would just turn up. This is so infuriating because why does it matter if someone is suffering with anxiety or depression or why does it matter what they're doing as their career? Like seriously, if they're missing, they're missing look for them. So Sean is left with nowhere to turn because it's like the police are not going to help him. So he starts calling as many people as he possibly can, trying to like track down like where was Laura last? Who did she speak to? Like blah, blah, blah. He even hired a private investigator and the private investigator managed to get their hands on Laura's phone records. And he found out that the last eight phone calls from Laura's phone were to a man named Dellen Millard. So Sean, now having this information, he goes back to the police and he's like, hey, I've got some information now. Laura made eight phone calls to Dellen Millard. She still hasn't showed up. Can you now look into it? But the police didn't. Again, the police didn't really think it was a priority. It's like, I do get that police are busy. I do get that. And I know resources are stretched and everything, but they didn't even bring Dylan in for questioning. But of course, if you haven't already guessed, Laura wasn't missing. She had been murdered by Dylan and Mark. So back in May of 2012, which was a couple of months before Laura disappeared, it was around the time where Dylan sent the text of removing Laura from himself and Christina's lives. Well, Dylan had started to instruct people at the family business to build him a home incinerator. Apparently he went round to the people at the family business who were building this home incinerator. He was going around telling everybody that he wanted to get into the pet cremation business. And I don't know if they believed him or not, but why would you want to do that either? But the people at the company were just like, okay, well, this is the son of the owner. So we kind of have to do what he wants. However, the plans for building this home incinerator 
We're not going to plan. Every time they would build the home incinerator, it would blow up or it would just not work very well. So Dylan was just like, oh, I'm going to have to buy one then. And that is exactly what Dylan did. He placed an order for this huge industrial incinerator called the Eliminator. Could they have not called it anything else? It's like, why? Why is an incinerator called the Eliminator? That's just, oh no, why? And this incinerator was due to arrive on the 5th of July, which was just two days after Laura disappeared. And then on the 2nd of July, which was the day before Laura went missing, Dylan bought a gun off a gun dealer that Mark knew. And I feel like I need to make this clear right now. Mark knew all about this plan. Mark was actually in on this and all for this plan. So Mark is just as involved as Dylan is. So on the 3rd of July, which is the day that Laura disappeared, Dylan sends a text to Mark at half seven in the morning and he says, I'm on a mission back in one hour. And the events of what happened next are not actually known, but it's thought that Dylan picked up Laura, brought her back to his property and then used the gun that he bought to murder her. The following day, there is a photo on Dylan's phone and it's a truly disturbing photo. And the image is of bright blue plastic tarp. And it's very clear that there is something inside of that tarp. It's rolled up. There is also Dylan's dog sat next to this tarp, which I'm sorry, get that dog away from Dylan right now. And it's thought that Laura's body is inside that tarp. Why would you take a picture of that? Like, why do it anyway? But why take a picture of it? Why is the dog there? And it's just disgusting. Like, why? I just, I don't understand people that would take that picture. Like, why? Why? Why do that? I feel like it just shows the arrogance of this man and the privilege that he has. Because anybody would know that if you take a picture of something like that, it's evidence. Even if you delete it, it's still there. It's still evidence. But he's just so arrogant because he thinks that he's not going to get caught. And then, of course, on the 5th of July, the Eliminator arrives. Dylan sets up the Eliminator on the family's air hanger. Dylan spent a couple of weeks testing out the Eliminator. And then on the 23rd of July, Dylan sends Mark a truly chilling text. And it said, barbecue has run its warm up. It is ready for meat. And then on that same evening, Dylan makes a Google search asking, what temperature is cremation done at? And he went on a webpage where a funeral director had replied to a question, which is just chilling. It's like, I don't know. I mean, I get people that are curious and everything, but we don't need to know that. Like, we don't need to know that temperature. Like, no. And then shortly after this, another photo is taken. This photo is of Mark holding an incinerator rake. And then Dylan and Mark also decide to film a video. Both of them are at the family air hangar and in the distance, you can see sparks. And it's thought that that is the eliminator and Laura's body is inside. And all of that is just absolutely horrific to hear. Both Dylan and Mark, the way they went about things, it's just so cold and you truly think, how do they get any worse than this? 
Well, they do. Following Laura's murder, Mark steals Laura's iPad, the iPad that Sean had bought her. He then plugged the iPad into his own computer and renamed the iPad Mark's iPad. And I just feel like, oh my God, the arrogance of these two. It's like, why would you make things so obvious? Like, did they really think that they were not going to get caught? But then it actually gets worse than all of that. So we know that Mark is an aspiring rapper and he uses Laura's iPad to record a rap song where he is rapping about murdering Laura. And my jaw literally hit the floor when I saw this video. The bitch started off all skin and bone. Now the bitch lay on some ash and stone. Last time I saw her outside the home. And if you go swimming, you can find a phone. Find a phone? What? What? Find a phone. If you go swimming, you can find a phone. Find a phone. Find a phone. You can find a phone. If you go swimming, you can find a phone. Bitch, lay on ash stone. The lyrics are just like about her burning body and about her phone and where is it? Her phone, it's lost, it's in a lake. I've got to say that that is probably one of the coldest reactions to a murder I have ever seen. It's like, how can you be like that? And it's just crazy that all of this was happening on Dylan's family's air hanger kind of just out in the open and no one was doing anything. The police were not doing anything. I mean, if they had just listened to Sean and if they had just done a little bit of digging, they would have seen these text messages between Dylan and Mark. They would have seen the text messages between Dylan and Christina. If they had visited the air hangar, they would have seen the incinerator. So Dylan and Mark were feeling pretty invincible because no one did anything. They had just gotten away so far with the murder of Laura Babcock. So Dylan and his ego, which has really been inflated at this point, four months later, another tragic event happened. And this one involved Dylan's dad, Wayne Millard. And Dylan's dad, Wayne, had recently been trying to expand the business and Dylan didn't like this at all. He didn't want his dad spending his inheritance money on stupid business ventures. And Dylan did everything that he could to try and block his dad from making these decisions. He was also acting out by going on more spending sprees and he was also acting out by not putting in any effort into his job. Which is like, what's new, Dylan? Like, seriously, you were never putting in any effort before, so what's the difference? And in response to all of this, because his dad is still in charge of the company, his dad threatens to cut him off financially, completely. And this will completely screw over Dylan and his lifestyle because... He basically lives off his dad's money. Dylan's dad, Wayne, also went about expanding the business anyway. He wasn't paying any attention to his son. But unfortunately, this would be one of the last things that Wayne Millard would ever do. Because on the 29th of November, 2012, he was tragically found dead in his home with a gunshot wound to the head. Now, this death was quickly ruled by police as a suicide. I think it had something to do with where the gunshot had gone through the head, it actually gone through the eye, 
and the placement of everything. They just assumed it was a suicide and no further investigation happened. But we all know it wasn't a suicide and it was Dylan. Dylan had actually staged it to kind of look like a suicide. And after murdering his dad, Dylan inherited the family business. And any plans that Wayne had had about expanding the business, well, Dylan completely shut all of those down. Dylan also fired all of the staff that were involved in the expansion of the business. It's just like, these are people's jobs. These are people's livelihoods. It's like, oh my God, this man. It's just completely unbelievable how he has murdered Laura. He's now murdered his dad. He's taken over the business. He's firing people left, right, and center. People are actually pointing the finger at him like, hello, you have something to do with Laura's disappearance. Why is no one asking questions? This just all looks so weird and suspicious. And Dylan is just able to get away with it. And very sadly, it only gets worse from here. And as far as I'm aware, Mark was not involved in the murder of Dylan's dad, but who knows, maybe he was. But as far as I'm aware, he wasn't. So Dylan is now in charge of the family business and he's using the air hanger as his personal playground, which let's face it, he was basically using it as that before. So not really much has changed. But now he's using the air hanger to store all of the stolen goods that he has because him and Mark are still going out on those missions of theirs to steal other people's cars and motorbikes and equipment and everything. And by the time we get to the spring of 2013, this is literally just months after the murder of his dad. We're getting on to nearly a year after the murder of Laura. Dylan and Mark decide to go on another criminal mission. And this time they want a pickup truck. They wanted to steal a Dodge Ram pickup truck. Again, we don't know why, because Dylan could literally just go out and buy one if he wanted one, but he likes the thrill of stealing one. So Dylan and Mark went online to find a Dodge Ram pickup truck and they find one that is being sold by a man called Tim Bosner. So Dylan and Mark contact Tim to arrange a test drive and Dylan and Mark had decided that they were going to steal the pickup truck. They had no intention of buying it. Something far worse would happen than just stealing a pickup truck. Tim Bosmer was 32 years old and he was a devoted family man. He had a wife and a young child. He ran his own business. He went to church every week with his family. And there was two things that Tim loved in life. And that was country music and his pickup truck. Now in the spring of 2013, the pickup truck had become a little bit of a burden on the family and Tim decided to sell it to make some money. And he advertised the truck online and a man got in contact with him wanting to buy the truck. And that man was Dylan Millard. Dylan agreed to come and view the pickup truck on the evening of the 6th of May. So Tim just sat at home waiting for Dylan to arrive for the test drive, but he was not showing up. The sun had started to set and Tim was just thinking, this is just so weird. Like who comes to test drive a car at night? And Tim turns to his wife and he just says to her like, what should I do? Like, if they turn up, should I go with them? And his wife replied with, well, yeah. I mean, her concern was that the pickle truck was going to get stolen. I mean, she already had kind of a bad feeling about these people anyway, because of how late they were arriving and just 
she just got a weird feeling and she was concerned that they wanted to steal the truck but she had no way of knowing what was actually going to happen just after 9 p.m that evening it was completely dark now two men appear on foot in tim's driveway and tim and his wife are just like okay this is really weird who arrives on foot to test drive a car unless you live like next door who does that? But Tim left his wife. He told his wife that he would be back soon and he went on the test drive with Dylan and Mark. However, tragically, Tim would never return home. After an hour had passed, Tim's wife had really started to panic by now because Tim should have been home and she already had that bad feeling about the two men. She was also calling Tim's phone, but it was going straight to voicemail, which again was making her panic because that was extremely weird. Tim always made sure that his phone was turned on and that it was always charged. So the fact that he was going to voicemail was just really, really strange. And alarm bells were just going off in Charlene's mind. She was going, oh my God, what has happened? They're stealing the truck. And she reported Tim missing to the police. And the very next day, the police had started their search to try and find Tim, hoping that they would find him alive and well. They were thinking, okay, maybe the truck has been stolen, but maybe... They dropped Tim off somewhere. Maybe we can find him. Police check Tim's phone records and see that a man called Della Millard was the last phone call made. Thankfully, in the case of Tim, the police didn't ignore the obvious signs and they go and arrest Della Millard straight away. And when they turn up to the air hangar, because that's where Della is to arrest him, he still has the keys to Tim's pickup truck in his pocket. The police search the property of the air hangar and they do find the Dodge Ram pickup truck. They look inside and they see a shell casing, gunshot residue, and they also see small traces of blood. Next, the police find Dellen's industrial incinerator. And when they look inside, they find human remains. And tragically, these were the remains of Tim Bosma. He had been brutally murdered by Della Millard and Mark Smitch. The police also looked at the CCTV footage at the air hangar and they could see that there were flames burning throughout the whole night, which were coming from the incinerator. And horrifically, it's thought that this footage captured Dellen burning Tim's body. So both Dellen and Mark were charged with first degree murder of Tim. And finally, the police had caught these two and brought their killing spree to an end because technically Dellen is now a serial killer. Mark, no, because he's only done two. But yeah, Dellen is technically a serial killer. Not that the police know that right now. The police only know about Tim's murder. And I bet you're thinking, when are they going to work out that they also murdered Laura and Wayne? Well, thankfully, as soon as Dellen was in custody for Tim's murder, the police start looking into other suspicious things about the two of them. And the police see that there is the suspicious death of Dellen's father. And they're like, hmm, was it really a suicide? And then they also do see that Laura Babcock is missing. She still has 
hasn't been found and she does also have links to Dellen. So both the cases of Wayne Millard and Laura Babcock are reopened. And after they have been reopened, the police find enough evidence to charge Dellen and Mark for the murder of Laura and Dellen for the murder of Wayne Millard. So this is a very complex case. I mean, there are three murders, three separate investigations. It took over three years for this case to actually go to trial, but eventually three separate trials were held for the murder of Tim Bosma, the murder of Wayne Millard and the murder of Laura Babcock. In Tim's trial, both Dylan and Mark were found guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 25 years. In Laura's trial, they were also both found guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 25 years. In Laura's trial, for some strange reason, Dylan had decided to represent himself, which meant that he was allowed to cross-examine Laura's family, which should not be allowed. Categorically, that should not be allowed. I get that everyone has the right to defend themselves. Like if they don't want a lawyer, you can defend yourself. That's fine. I don't care about that. But in no circumstances should you be allowed to cross-examine the victim's family. Mm, no way. So that adds just another level of sickness to this man. It's like he got some kind of enjoyment out of doing that. And throughout Laura's trial, it was actually found that Dylan was writing secret letters to his girlfriend, Christina. Yeah, he's still with her. And in these letters, he's trying to convince Christina to get their stories to match up, to basically give him an alibi. And she actually went along with this. She was gonna lie on the stand to give Dylan an alibi. Thankfully, they discovered these letters and Christina was actually charged as well for perverting the course of justice and she was also given a short prison sentence. And then finally, Dylan went to trial for the murder of his dad, Wayne Millard. And again, he was found guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 25 years. Both Dylan and Mark's sentences are to be served consecutively, which means that Dylan has to serve a minimum of 75 years and Mark has to serve a minimum of 50 years. And what drove Dylan and Mark to commit these murders? That is something that the police were never able to find out. I mean, the motive behind the murder of Laura and the murder of Dylan's dad, Wayne is probably more obvious, but why did they murder Tim? Like, why? And I don't buy the reason of the murdering Tim was so they could get away with stealing the truck because Tim had seen them. Tim could report them, blah, blah, blah because Tim's wife, Charlene, had also seen them. So she could report them. I just don't get it. The most common theory as to why Dylan and Mark murdered Tim was just for the thrill of it. They were thrill killers. And it's just sickening, isn't it, that Dylan killed three innocent people and Mark killed two just for the thrill of it, just for some fun, just because they were Bored. Laura Babcock had so much ahead of her. She was so loved by so many people. She had just graduated. She had dreams of becoming an actress. She just had a huge personality that would light up a room and she was just adored by her friends and family. Wayne Millard was a happy, successful man. He put his heart and soul into the business and all he wanted to do was expand the business and Dylan didn't like that. And Tim Bosma was a loving husband, a devoted 
father. He was absolutely adored by everyone. He always had a smile on his face. Everyone loved him. And it's just so tragic that Dylan and Mark have taken Tim away from his wife and from his young daughter. Now that little girl has to grow up without a dad just because Dylan and Mark wanted a thrill. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening today. There are no updates on this case, which is why I don't have anything to bring you at the end of this episode. Make sure to subscribe or follow so you never miss an episode of The Criminal Makeup. And I would really love it if you could leave a five-star review if you enjoyed the show. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. I will also leave a link in the description box for my merch as well because if you follow me over on YouTube, you might know this, but I have recently just launched a charity hoodie where 100% of the proceeds that I make from that hoodie are going to charity. And all of the details on the charity and the amazing work that they do is over on my merch website. So go over and check that out if you haven't already. And special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom Studios, and I'll see you all in the next one. <laughs>